Stu Does America. It's the last play. You're desperate. You're just going to throw it up for grabs and hope somebody comes down with it. That's all you can do at this point if you're the left. This is the attempt. They've tried it with guns. They've tried it with abortion. They're going to try it with January 6th. These are all just Hail Marys over and over and over again. And so far, they're not being answered. Joe Biden's approval rating. Let me give you this. You can say all you want. Oh, how low it is. This is just a piece of scientific polling advice to any campaign who is out there trying to figure out what they should do with their administration. If you happen to be a president with your campaign, if you're a candidate, try not to make your approval rating chart look like an X. You don't want an X. The X shape is problematic. You have the approval and disapproval crisscrossing about, I don't know, maybe it was August or so of last year. And we've seen a continued spiral into despair for the Biden administration, now under 40% on the Real Clear Politics average. Now, every once in a while, a poll comes out that has been was south of 40, and then there'd be one that would push it back up over 45. Now we're getting an average under 40. That is a disaster, and again, lower than any president in measured history. Joe Biden sucks. That's just the facts. I, I, you know, I hope you're... I hope you're on board with that because it's true. So what do you do? You got to do something. You can't just sit here and take a gigantic historic loss. You got to try something. And you're seeing the desperation get more and more and more increasing and increasing every single day. Uh, the 39.7% is a real catastrophe. So why not put on a show? And the January 6th thing uh, is something we've talked, obviously, a lot about over the years. I'm not obsessed with it, like seemingly a lot of people are. I don't need to talk about it every single day. It was a bad day in our history. I'm not a fan of it. I don't like what happened that day. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm different than uh, some other conservatives. I don't, I don't think so in reality. But the truth is, if we had an actual effort to understand what happened on that day, I'd be interested to hear some of the details. For example, I'd be interested to hear why our security efforts were so bad that day. I'd be interested to know that. If there is some grand scheme of, of overthrowing the government at play, I'd surely like to know it and punish the people responsible. I'd like to know. I hope everyone went through all the footage and the people who did attack police officers that day. I want them to be punished. This is not something that like I'm cheering on. Great job, everybody, on January 6th. And if we had a real committee committee looking into this, someone, you know, a group of people who actually were fairly trying to understand what happened and how we can prevent something like this happening next time, because next time it might not be a bunch of people in funny looking hats. It might be uh, 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 an, uh, uh, an Al-Qaeda splinter group that tries to do something like this, and it could be a lot worse. So uh, we should learn things about our, secu- our security. We should learn things uh, about um, what happened on that day. But this committee will do none of that. It will give you nothing. You will learn nothing from it. At least that's what I believe. And again, if it was a serious committee, serious committees don't reschedule their committees for primetime television. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You don't schedule it like it's a television show. What's that? You got to bring in a television producer? Well, they did that too. The Democrats have brought in a television producer, the uh, January 6th uh, secret advisor, Um, James Goldston, he's the former president of ABC News. 
He uh, was a master documentary storyteller. He ran Good Morning America and Nightline. And he's joined the committee as an unannounced advisor, according to Axios. This is a television show. They are going for max impact. They actually uh, arrested a gubernatorial candidate uh, in Michigan on riot-related charges. Again, as far as I can tell, it was a misdemeanor they're arresting him for. And they sent over all these cops and made this big show about it. Uh, the FBI got involved. I mean, really? Is that really necessary? We talked to a guy um, in prison uh, who has been in prison for over a year, sitting there with very light charges on him until this week where they decided to throw sedition at him as well. We're seeing a lot of this happening. This is a planned rollout of a story. It is not an honest effort to get information about a serious issue. It is a story. It is a Dateline episode and they want it to unfold just like that in primetime. Tim Pool asked a pretty uh, probing question which we've asked here as well. Why isn't the assassination attempt on Kavanaugh the top of the news cycle? It's a really, really good question. Hmm, why isn't it at the top of the news cycle? Well, the problem is, of course, when you have a planned rollout of a news story that you can time exactly, well, uh, that takes precedent. You know, we've had these stories, we've had these things before that have happened here where we plan a big special, for example. A big special comes up. We've put a ton of effort into it. We're going to unveil, a, you know, Glenn's got some big chalkboard he's going to do. And then like the day before he's about to do it, after months and months of effort, a big news story breaks and we just have to trash the thing. Uh, that sucks. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's basically kind of what's, what's going on here. They've been planning this rollout this entire time. They can't get a little bit of an assassination attempt against the Supreme Court justice to get in their way. No, no. They own this cycle. This is theirs. They've been planning for it for a very long time. They've been leaking details to their friends in the media. I mean, when I say friends in the media, I'm, they are the media. Half the people that are working for this committee are in the media or have careers that have been in the media. Uh, Cabot Phillips pointed this out on about CNN. They are just ignoring this completely. It's been 24 hours since the assassination attempt of a Supreme Court justice, and CNN doesn't have a single story about it on their homepage. I'm sure their lack of coverage has nothing to do with Kavanaugh's political leanings, though. Oh, no, of course not. Um, he uh, tweeted out uh, a link to the uh, homepage here. I mean, and look at it. Uh, let me give you a couple things uh, that are on here. Uh, you see the smiling woman in the lower third in the middle. Uh, that story is called Confessions of a 1980s Flight Attendant. Hmm, that sounds pretty interesting. I mean, it sounds like a Cinemax special, to be, <laughs> to be honest with you. I don't know what happened on a 1980s flight. I mean, maybe you know, Joe Biden asked her to, to check the seatbelt and then started sniffing her hair. I don't know what, what the story could possibly be. But uh, you also have uh, the Webb Telescope's massive mirror is hit by a micro-meteoroid. Uh, you have uh, Jeff Koons and his sculpture is going to be auctioned hmm. for Ukraine aid. Wow, that's, that's pretty exciting. Uh, Cabot Phillips also finds some other uh, exciting headlines uh, from CNN.com. The NFL's first out trans cheerleader readies for her Carolina Panthers debut. An 11-year-old gets plucks from the audience and stuns judges on America's Got Talent. And how Jared Kushner kept Donald Trump happy. Oh, I wonder what that could be. Uh, just so you know, a Supreme Court justice uh, was almost killed. And 
the person who attempted to do it was charged with attempted murder. But is that important? I don't know. New York Times is another one. And now, people have pointed out this on their um, uh, uh, hard copy, their printed copies today. Here's the front cover of the New York Times. And you see a little circle, the very bottom of the page there on the left-hand side, a little circle, one little paragraph. And what it says is to go to page, I think it's A20. And if, when you do that, you get this incredible story about the assassination attempt on a sitting Supreme Court justice in the middle of the biggest Supreme Court uh, season we've ever seen. Uh, I noticed the same thing. Now, you maybe you say, okay, well, it happened technically at 1 a.m. yesterday. Uh, so now it's been, you have basically a whole 24 hours before the printed paper comes out. Maybe they didn't think it was breaking news. Now, of course, that's completely ridiculous. The story came, down, came out in the middle of the day. It was a big story all day. But even if you give them the break, I decided to look yesterday early evening to see what was on and how they were covering it. I honestly assumed that if I went to their app, I would find this story being the number one story. I really did. And that shows that even this jaded media observer can't be jaded enough. Ready? Here we go. Page one, top of the side, Trump set to be questioned under oath by New York AG next month. Wow, that's that's pressing. Scroll down a little bit. How Jared Kushner washed his hands of Donald Trump before January 6th. Here's a guide to watching the January 6th committee, committee hearings, which begin on Thursday. I believe this was actually the very top of the, uh, of the story. As survivors demand action, House passes gun bill doomed in the Senate. So a bill that we know isn't going anywhere is the top story, but not Supreme Court justice. Um, and attempted murder charges. That's nowhere. Okay, let's keep going. How South Dakota voters won a power struggle with GOP legislators. Hmm, I mean, look, I love South Dakota as much as anyone else. Usually the New York Times isn't leading their news with South Dakota stuff. Just throwing that out there. Representative Michael Guest, a Mississippi Republican, will face Michael Cassidy in a runoff. Tom Keene will face Tom Malinowski in what is shaping up to be New Jersey's most competitive midterm contest. Anything about Kavanaugh yet? No? Okay, let's go to uh, scrolling. Now, each one of these represents me having to scroll down my phone through all the stories. Now we're down to uh, scroll number five. Russia restores rail links and canal to cement hold on south. From the graveside to the front, Ukrainians tell of grim endurance. Hmm. Number six, progressive backlash in California fuels Democratic debate over crime. Now, there is some really interesting stuff about that story, but is it really, should it be above the attempted assassination of a Supreme Court justice? We promised to get her ice cream that evening. Uh, story about Uvalde. The Justice Department is aiming to finish an inquiry into the law enforcement response in Uvalde in six months. Uvalde, Texas, has seen two mass shooting plots in four years. Residents are asking, how could this happen? And then, all the way after scrolling through eight pages on the mobile app, you get this. Armed man travels to just Kavanaugh's home to kill him, officials say. All of that. All of that. Ahead of a sitting Supreme Court justice in the middle of the biggest Supreme Court session we can ever imagine and ever remember. And it's not even, it didn't even make the first seven mobile pages. Really? Really? It's really fascinating. Look, the truth is, this is a show. 
This whole January 6th thing that you're going to see tonight, and you probably won't see, but many of, much of America will tune in. If they don't like Donald Trump, they're probably watching. It's a show. It's produced like a television show, and it's trying to give you a television show presentation of this information. Why? To solve the problem? To stop it from next time? No. To defeat uh, Republicans. And to be clear, they know they're going to lose this election. You never know how things turn out. Of course, Republicans are very, very good at blowing elections, so they could make more uh, noise than you'd think. But the truth is they know what position they're in. They are desperate beyond belief. And they are going to try anything, any Hail Mary, to try to win this game. And at this point, they're not even trying to win Republican seats. They're not even trying really to defend purple districts. They're just trying to defend, with their base, the bluest of blue districts. So they can hold on to whatever remnant of power they can. This is a show. This is desperation. And the American people are not falling for it. Yes, the bipartisanship, the the gun bill is here, and it's bipartisan. Therefore, we must celebrate it. Of course, anything that's bipartisan usually sucks, and that's a lesson that people don't typically gather, Uh, at least on a controversial issue. It usually sucks. It usually means one side is getting most of what they want, and a few in the middle are saying, I guess we'll give you everything that you want. We'll get into the details of this in just a second, but let me give you the 10 names of the Republicans who are on board with this. I mean, I'll tell you this, just looking at this list, I would trade all 10 of them for one toasted cheddar chalupa from Taco Bell. All 10, bye-bye, give me one chalupa, We'll move on running the country. That's just my trade. You know, you may have, maybe that's too much for you. Maybe take half a chalupa. Uh, John Cornyn in Texas, who I'm starting to come to the conclusion is the worst senator in the Senate. And the reason why I say that is not because he's, he votes worse than, you know, Chuck Schumer. It's because he's in Texas. And we could have a good senator in Texas. Why do we have the crappiest Republican in Texas, it makes absolutely no sense. I don't know what Chad Prather is up to in a few years, but, you know, get the campaign wheels running here, Chad. Come on, get it going. Um, Tom Tillis, another one in North Carolina. Just ugh. Roy Blunt in Missouri. Rob Portman retiring from Ohio. Uh, Burr from North Carolina. Mitt Romney. You knew it was coming. You, it was, it's an annoying bill. You knew Mitt Romney's name was going to be on it. Uh, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, ugh. Uh, Lindsey Graham, who I remind you, sucks. People are like, oh no, Lindsey Graham, I heard him say something nice about Donald Trump once. Don't fall for that nonsense. He sucks. Lindsey Graham used to be my example for America's worst senator before I gave it to John Cornyn. And, you know, and again, that's because you can have somebody good in South Carolina. You don't have to deal with Susan Collins. Susan Collins is in Maine. The fact that she ever votes with Republicans, you kind of take, that's all gravy, honestly. Uh, you know, she's like, she gets like 11% from, from uh, conservative organizations. You're like, hey, that's 11% more than Chuck Schumer gets. Congratulations. I mean, Lindsey Graham sucks. He does this all the time. He really does suck. Just just pointing that out. And Pat Toomey, who would be the one guy on this list who I would say is actually a good senator. He just sucks on the gun issue. He's sucked on the gun issue the whole time. 
Everything else, he's generally speaking pretty halfway decent. And again, he's in a purple state where it's not always easy to win. You, you take Pat Toomey and you say, okay, well, he's, he's good on the economy. He's good on a bunch of stuff. He's just not great on guns. You, you live with it, I guess. But he's leaving anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Dr. Oz, maybe. I wonder what Dr. Oz is. Does anyone have any idea? What is Dr. Oz's opinion on the Second Amendment? I know he used to not like it very much back in the day and was for a lot of left-wing policies on that. But I hope he's changed his mind. I hope uh, Donald Trump has nailed this one because he's the candidate and I really do hope he wins because the Senate control, very, very important. Um, I will say the bipartisan gun bill is not the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario would have been basically what the House passed, which was all sorts of crazy restrictions. You don't have an assault weapons ban in this thing. You don't have um, an AR-15 ban. You don't have uh, a, uh, and by the way, AR-15, doesn't, it doesn't stand for assault rifle 15. Like there was 14 other assault rifles before this. Uh, assault rifle doesn't really mean much of anything. Um, modern sporting rifle is a better term. You get a bunch of guns in there, not just the AR-15. But the AR-15 is the one everyone seems to always want to talk about. You also uh, don't have the raising the age to 21. Uh, some of the things that the, the, the uh, universal background checks are not on here. A lot of the things that the left, you know, in their fever dreams thinks they're going to get after every terrible incident that they try to take advantage of is not in this bill. And this is kind of what makes it dangerous. I want to go kind of through step by step what is in here and how it came together and what the real goal is. And I want you to stay with me because the last clip I'm going to pay, play, uh, play you not only tells you exactly what the left is trying to do, but also what you need to do what I need to do, what we all need to do with this list once this is all over, okay? We'll get to that in a second. The bipartisan gun bill, let's start with school security resources. I came up with a, a scale here uh, between nonsense and common sense. Is this a common sense gun deal or is it complete and utter nonsense? And just to, before we, I, I, re, I talk about this particular topic, I went at this with the most generous rating system I could come up with. And the reason I did it that way is because we don't have any of the details of these things. They're just like a sentence or two describing them conceptually. So I'm going to take it like best case scenario, what could we get out of this? If this was passed, is it completely a disaster or is it uh, you know, common sense? This would be a good move. Let's go through some of this. Uh, school security resources. This is, hey, maybe there's, uh, I would take that as something relatively good. It's something that we've talked about over and over again as a way to push back against a possible mass shooting at a school. You add security resources, you uh, harden the schools. This is a sort of a Republican wishing, uh, a, a, a Republican wish, right? As a Republican talking point saying, hey, you know, why don't we harden the schools? Maybe add some security. Maybe, you know, come up with some sort of security plan. God forbid if one of these incidents uh, happens. For example, don't leave doors unlocked all over the campus. Do the things that you can do. So that could, I mean, again, the details, the devil's in the details, but that's not necessarily a bad proposal. This one is maybe a little controversial, but I think maybe not. Um, enhanced review process for under 21 buyers. I put this one on our scale from zero to five, five being common sense, zero being nonsense. I put this one at a four. And some people would say, wait a minute, enhanced security, that doesn't, I don't know, enhanced review process, that sounds bad. What they're saying it is, though, I think most people would agree with. Now, 
you know and I know that Republicans and Democrats alike all don't want people who have been in mental asylums for years at a time buying guns. You know, that's been a, that's a Republican talking point, right? It's like saying, hey, guys, you know, we need to do a better job with mental health to make sure that we weed out the people who have had violent tendencies in the past that have maybe spent time in mental health facilities, have already gone through all this. There needs to be some, we need to be aware of that. Well, as they explain current law, and this is different from state to state, but current law, they say the background check system does not catch someone who theoretically went to a mental health institution when they were 17 for violent tendencies and then on her 18th birthday went to go buy a gun because it did not look into the juvenile history. Now we all would, you know, it already takes place with background checks where you look into the uh, adult history, but they don't let you look into the juvenile history. This would expand that to from between 18 and 21, you could still look at the juvenile history. That is not a crazy idea. Again, will it be abused? Of course it will, but we're not looking at that right now. We're just looking at on, on its face, on its surface, how crazy is it? And I think we'd like to know if someone is 17 years old and has major, major problems and is in an institution, walks out of the institution on their 18th birthday and goes to, you know, uh, a gun store. All right, by, uh, how about mental health and telehealth investment? This one uh, is a three on our scale, right in the middle. It's in the middle, why? Well, because this is something that I think we all understand should be a focus of this. Should there be a focus on mental health? Should there be a way for someone who's in a mental health crisis to get the treatment that they need? Yes, I think we all would agree with that. Uh, that would be great. We do have a you know, miserable mental health uh, system here in the United States. It does not work. It's a catastrophe in 100 million ways. But what I will say is we don't have the money to spend on any of this crap. So, you know, yes, I think more focus on this would be good. Should it come from the government? Should we be spending more money on it? That's why it's the middle of the road. But again, we have no real detail on it. How about a federal law against gun trafficking and straw purchasing? This I put in the middle as well. And again, this is a generous reading of this. And the reason why I leave it that way is straw purchasing is already illegal, right? Like there's a lot of this stuff that they're just doubling up on and make them making federal laws where you can't make them. You can't make straw purchases anyway for people. That's And a straw purchase, in case you don't know the, the terminology, is basically like, you know, Jeffy, who's obviously a criminal, comes to me and says, hey, I need a gun, and I go buy a gun and just give it to Jeffy. Like, you can't do that. Everybody knows you can't do that. It's already illegal. What this law would do would make it, I guess, extra illegal, but it wouldn't necessarily um, you know, trample on, on your rights until the inevitable abuse that is coming uh, down the road. Next up, you have closing of the boyfriend loophole. That one we have at a three as well on our zero to five scale from nonsense to common sense. Uh, this one again has elements that I think would be understandable to most people. The concept being, okay, if you are convicted, and that's an important, an important phrase here, convicted of domestic abuse, you can't go buy a gun. Now, of course, this is something that already exists in the law. And you might say, well, wait a minute, uh, why aren't we doubling up here? What they call the boyfriend loophole is basically, if you are a domestic abuser in a marriage, you can't buy a gun. But if you're a domestic abuser in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship and you don't live together, 
you, uh, you can buy a gun. This is the loophole they're trying to close. Now, again, abuse is rampant on these things. Uh, uh, Dana Lash, a friend of ours, of course, uh, has uh, talked about how they're not even specific if it's a, a sexual relationship or not. Like, it can just be someone you know. It could be a friend. It, there's all sorts of crazy ways that this could be abused, and which is why it's a bad idea. Uh, but in theory, you could understand why just because you're not married to someone, you shouldn't necessarily fall out of the line of this law. And by the way, and this is, a, this is not in the bipartisan gun bill, um, my proposal to America is we just let Dana Lash decide. Like, we just say, hey, Dana, this is a good idea, and we just let her put in all the gun laws in the entire country. Now, you might say, uh, I don't think the left is going to go for that, and I don't, I, I, uh, don't care uh, if they go for it or not. I just want to, I'm saying I want to do it. So whatever she says, I'm totally fine with, frankly, uh, but that's just a, a side proposal, not in the bipartisan gun bill. How about uh, clarifying the definition of a federally licensed firearm dealer? This one I put as a really close to nonsense. One of the reasons I put it as, as only a two on our scale uh, from nonsense to common sense is that uh, they put absolutely no detail. It's just like one sentence. We want to make sure we get all the commercial sales. And then they looked really shady, shifty eyed back and forth a bunch of times and then walked off stage. Um, we don't know what that is. It certainly stinks of someone saying they're going to try to expand background checks into rule and into areas where we're uncomfortable with as Second Amendment supporters. Um, we don't know that yet. Uh, you know, you try to make someone who is selling one gun into a, a firearm dealer and you can you can basically pass the universal background check without uh, without passing it. And that is one of the reasons why. Uh, it, this one's really like this is one of the most I'm most suspicious about this one. They're not giving you any detail and it doesn't seem like it's certainly not a major problem. You know, I mean, we know this you know, as we've covered on we've covered on our gun special. Go back and watch it from a couple of weeks ago. Stu debunks gun myths. Um, only one point three percent, one point three percent of criminals get their guns through commercial retail transactions. That's not where they get them. It's not where they get them. So these laws often mean nothing. They're just different ways to reach into your pocketbook of rights and start helping themselves. And when that we don't want. Uh, last one I'll give you is red flag laws. Now, red flag laws, I gave it a one on the scale from nonsense to common sense. And there, there's a reason why I didn't give it a zero, at which uh, <laughs> I was tempted to give it a zero. Obviously, there's some understanding. We understand that red flag laws, there are people who fall into this crazy, you know, um, they, they may be a danger to themselves or others, and you'd love to prevent them from getting a gun. The problem, of course, is due process. You have to commit a crime before you're convicted of a crime. You don't just, the punishment doesn't come before you do something wrong. That's not how our society works, and that's why it's a major problem. A couple reasons why I didn't put it as a zero. It is not a federal law. So what they're doing basically is bribing states to do it. They're saying, we're going to put up a bunch of money. If you pass a red flag law, we'll give you a bunch of money uh, to, uh, to implement it. Now, what that does prevent you against is making it a nationwide thing. I mean, Texas isn't going to pass a, a, a statewide red flag law. I don't think they will. There are some conservatives who argue, yeah, 
you know, you should do this. David French, who, you know, has been more uh, talked about recently for his, you know, more anti-Trump types of stances. Um, it, it has, but, you know, he's been arguing for this for a while. Uh, there have been some who have pointed out like, hey, look, it's kind of similar. Red flag law works like this. In case you don't know, basically, you know, I think Jeffy should not have a gun. I go to the court and I say, hey, this guy's really dangerous. He should absolutely not have a gun. Uh, he's got five of them and I'm really worried. And so in theory, if I can convince uh, the judge of this, again, this sort of kangarooish court, uh, they can go take Jeffy's guns, which that I would partic- that particular thing I would advocate for, of course. Uh, they take Jeffy's guns and they hold them until they have a some sort of hearing to see if Jeffy's really a danger to himself. And if if they deem he is, I guess he doesn't get them back. I, so this is uh, it's 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 backwards. It's not the way our legal system works. Some people have pointed out it's kind of like an arrest, right? You get arrested at first, you're put into a cell, and then they give you charges a couple days later. If you narrowly crafted it in some way, maybe you could come up with something here. Number one, it would be completely abused. And number two, more importantly, it's not constitutional. I mean, Dana Lashley herself has also made this point. This is not a constitutional procedure here. You need due process for a constitutional right to be taken away. This is not like, do you are you able to go... Uh, get your toasted cheddar chalupa at Taco Bell. This is a constitutional right. Now, I would support an amendment for, uh, for toasted uh, cheddar chalupas, personally. I've, I've, I've advocated for that many, many times. There's another special. I go back and find it. Stu does toasted cheddar chalupas, in which I advocate for that quite clearly. But it so far has not been implemented, to my chagrin. So there you go. That's everything that's, that's in there. And this is kind of the thing that you see. Doing something is always important. Doing something. Are we doing something here? Well, doing something doesn't mean do something because there have been tons of gun control laws passed in states all over the country. It's not doing something if you do it in a state to the left. It's doing something only if it's federal. And there's been lots of federal stuff that has been done to address this as well, but it wasn't gun control. So it's got to be federal and it's got to be gun control. That's doing something. Uh, So uh, partially this is doing something. And you do, you know, we made fun of AOC at the beginning of this, but when these gun laws are implemented and the people getting caught with guns and being punished with guns are people who are adjacent to gangs, young teenagers who are influenced by their older brothers who are in gangs, and they're the ones uh, in inner cities who are being arrested on these things, all of these people who are pushing for these laws are going to tell you those laws are racist. That's what they're going to do. They're going to say they're disproportionately affecting African-American communities, and they're going to tell you they are racist. That's where we're going here. Get ready for it. Um, I want to tell you about who put this together, though. This is an interesting part of the story, and I think it's the most important part. Chris Murphy. Chris Murphy, you know, you talk about senators that do things. Chris Murphy, Connecticut Democrat. Uh, They also have Richard Blumenthal, who's a Connecticut Democrat, who's absolutely terrible. So he, uh, but Murphy has, his approach here is a little scary. I want them to go the AOC approach. I want them to say every Republican wants children dead. That's what I want them to say, because that's never going to do anything. It's never going to influence anybody. Chris Murphy basically went to Republicans and said, hey, what do you want to do? We'll pass pretty much anything you want. And you got those moderate Republicans to say, well, we wouldn't mind uh, maybe a red flag law or something like that. How about that? And Chris Murphy's like, "Uh, yeah, sure. I want to hear give you uh, where this goes. Okay, this is the goal. This is how this works. First, what he's doing here, Chris Murphy, is called progressivism. It's something that's been going on for a long time. Listen to him describe it. What I know is that 
no great social change movement in this country got everything they wanted in the first bill they passed. Look at the marriage equality movement. The first thing that happened in the marriage equality movement was just the simple right of gay couples to be able to adopt. Now, folks could have said, that's not gay marriage. We're not supporting that. We're not supporting anything until we get everything. But once that change passed, it made other changes possible. It all of a sudden convinced opponents that there was political benefit to coming to the table and supporting more rights for gay couples. And it got us to the point eventually where we were able to pass marriage equality laws all around the country and get a constitutional change. I just know that if you study great social change movements, making the first change, right, breaking the log jam is often what allows you, is almost universally what allows you to make all the other changes. And I think that this bill in and of itself is worth supporting. If we never passed another bill, we should pass this bill because it will save lives. But that's not how this is going to work. This will allow us to build bigger coalitions, to get more Republicans willing to support changes in the future. It's about common sense gun control. When you hear that description, they it's a little it's a little step on a longer path. That's progressivism, though. You understand that. But there's another part of this that's really, really important. I think this is the most important thing of this entire segment, this entire monologue and maybe this entire issue. Listen to him describe what they're trying to do with this bill. And tell me it does not make you want to take action and do something when it comes to your politics. Listen. This is the broader mythology about gun laws, which is that if you vote for them, you are going to lose politically. That is not true. I mean, the mythology all dates to the 1994 election. President Clinton, after that election, made a statement to suggest that it was the assault weapons ban that led to the losses in the 1994 midterms. And so why I think getting this done is so critical is not just because the provisions will save lives, but also because by showing Republicans that the political sky does not fall when you vote for common sense gun safety measures, we will actually make it much more possible that we'll be able to pass further mm. measures down the line. You have to get that first step done. You have to prove that theory of political harm wrong in order to be able to do anything else. Got it. Republicans aren't voting for this stuff, not because they don't, they want to protect your Second Amendment rights, but because they're scared you'll vote them out of office. And this bill is designed specifically to make sure Republicans don't feel that way. The sky won't fall if you pass anti-Second Amendment legislation. It is up to you. It is up to me. It is up to all of us that if this goes through, that we teach Republicans a lesson that, yes, their political sky will fall. It will fall if you vote for this stuff. Yes, there is an opportunity here to make sure everyone does know that, yeah, you're going to be in trouble with your voters. Yes, the sky will fall if you vote for this. It's a lesson that every Republican, whether they're on this stupid list of 10 or not, needs to hear clearly. Listen up, your sky is about to fall. Joining me now in studio, the one, the only, Dave Rubin. His new book is out, Don't Burn This Country, Surviving and Thriving, 
in our woke dystopia. It's available now. Be sure to pick up a copy today. As well, you can catch Dave, of course, on the Rubin Report right here on Blaze TV. Dave, how's it going? Stu, what was the funny part there? Was it the surviving or the thriving? The surviving is like, yeah, yeah we're kind of doing it. The thriving was what got you. Like, it was. Eh, I don't know. Well, that seems like a bit much. Most dystopian societies don't talk about thriving all that much. No. But here you are to bring us a positive message. Um, let me. I want to get into the book here in a second. But we just did a thing on uh, on this this misinformation board uh, yeah. that is that is happening. I mean, you've dealt with this. You were suspended for saying something about vaccines that is now apparently very easy to say. Anyone, anyone New York Times can say it. Anybody can say it now. The problem with trying to crack down on misinformation in this way, besides the fact that it's not really constitutional when the government does it, is that they can't figure out what it is. I mean, you know, this is uh, it's it's a process that seems completely uh, you'd say it's random if it wasn't targeted at one side all the time. Well, that's the key part right Mm -hmm. there. I was suspended in July of 2021 for saying that Vaccine mandates were coming and that vaccines were not working as promised. Mm. Well, we all know that the vaccines were not working as promised. We knew it then. We certainly know it now. (laughs) Uh, Joe Biden had said just before that, that uh, if you get the vaccine, you will not get nor transmit COVID, that either was a lie or disinformation or misinformation, or he was handed a piece of paper and just read something not knowing what he was saying. I mean, we can... It's a whole other topic, whether <laughs> yes, uh, whether anything that come out of his mouth is, yeah. is disinformation or honest or coming from his brain or whatever else. But the point is, I was suspended on Twitter for that. And then, of course, subsequently, over the course of a few months, it all turned out to be true. So I would say that, in essence, yesterday's conspiracy theories are <laughs> tomorrow's truth. And really, this has nothing to do with stifling disinformation. I mean, if you wanted to stifle disinformation, we need only look at the very people that are trying to institute some of this stuff and the lies that they have pushed, uh, whether it was Russia collusion or all of the COVID stuff, obviously, or Brett Kavanaugh as a serial rapist or a litany of other things. I mean, these people have lied either intentionally or misinformed, perhaps unintentionally, although I think we're past that point. They've done it for so long, Mm -hmm. and what they really are trying to counter is that there are some people actually waking up to the nonsense, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this is happening at the exact same time as Elon Musk is buying Twitter and basically just saying, hey, say what you think, and then we'll see what happens. And that's the enemy. I mean, yeah. they're, they're terrified of that prospect. Yeah. Um, let me get into a piece of misinformation as it re- regards to your book, because yes. I'm fascinated by this. Uh-oh, We've been dealing you, with this for a long me? time. No, well, I'm not you. I'm, I'm yes. fact-checking something around you. So your book, uh, this is your second one here in a row that has been hugely successful. People are buying it like crazy. It's awesome. Yeah. However, the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Speaking of disinformation. It is among the most infuriating things I've yeah. ever witnessed. When, when Glenn's first book came out, um, or maybe it was his second book, I guess, we were, at, we were at working at CNN Headline News to show you how times have changed. Yeah. And I remember it coming out, and we got the book scan numbers first. And the book scan numbers just tell you how many books are sold. Right. It's and just straight just up straight sales. numbers. Yeah, okay. Sales. Easy. To, we know how that works. Who sold the most books? That's kind of how we thought bestseller lists worked. And Glenn finished first. And then I think it was, I want to say it was Stephen Colbert. It was Colbert or John Stewart or something. It was in that era. And we came in second on the New York Times bestseller list, and, uh, and Stephen Colbert came in first. And we were so infuriated. Mm-hmm. Glenn's last book, to show you how far the New York Times has changed, he's, again, selling number one on BookScan yep. and is number 13, number 15, uh, not even on the list some weeks. I, I mean, the fact that this is still the thing people look to as a marker of what people are reading is 
insanity, and you've been affected by this now. Well, what's incredible about it, before I get into my sob story, (laughs) and thank you for queuing me up nicely, is that first off, let's just give Glenn some credit for a second. He sells so many books even now, and when I say even, uh, I mean even now meaning that it's much harder to sell books. Yeah, these the book days. industry has changed. The quickly. book industry has, has massively changed. He's selling crazy bananas numbers. So this time, I think they did put him on for the Great Reset, but they put him much lower much than lower, he should yeah. be, and all mm-hmm. this stuff. Mm-hmm. But your basic point is: look, here we've got numbers. Sales are numbers, <laughs> right. right? It's pretty obvious. Yeah. You buy something, it gets ticked off. It's been purchased. Move on. And everyone thought that's what the New York Times bestseller list meant. But in essence, it was their own sort of curated popularity contest, and there are certain things that they want you to see, there are certain things that they want their readers to see as relevant, and then there are certain books and ideas and people that they don't want on there. So by sales, we should have been number two in our debut week, mm. uh, and, and when you combine formats, meaning audio and everything else, perhaps we should have been number one. I, don't, I honestly don't care, uh, truly, because it's all nonsense. Yeah. What I care about is that there are people that are duped by this, and yeah. if you think about the new, it's not about the importance of the sales and the numbers and that you get to say New York Times bestselling author. It doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't. But if they lie about straight up numbers, as you said, book scan numbers that we know are hard facts, and I know facts are counter to the New York Times, then what else do you think they're lying about? Yeah. And I think if you can get people to see that conclusion, if we can get people to connect that, boy, you know, they manipulate, you think you're so bright, you read the Sunday Times, you think you're so enlightened, and you're getting all of the information. Well, by the way, they're lying to you about book sales, something pretty straight up. So you think they might be lying to you about some other stuff, and if we can actually pull that thread a little bit with people, I think we can break through to some of them. You know, a lot of people that are still paying attention to this stuff are completely brainwashed, and, and maybe <laughs> yeah. we're never gonna get them, yeah. but I think it's it's worth a shot. So I, I don't care about the Crimea River aspect as much as I'm very proud that people read the book and, and seem to be digging it. And, yeah, uh, well, yeah. You know, it, we'll just keep pushing on. I think, I think you identify exactly why it fascinates me, in that, you know, this is something basic. It's like the score of a basketball game. Right. And it's like they're just altering it for some mysterious reason. This is not the year 1875 and they're trying to like, you know, figure <laughs> out who's buying books in the, on the frontier. Right. right. Like this is, everyone knows how many books are sold. There's a list published that tells you exactly how much. And what I also find fun, fun, uh, fundamentally interesting about it is that the, the story I, I described with Glenn is, is exactly true. It, it, when we first started writing books, he would, they would move it a slot or two. And you could t- it was frustrating because they yes. would manipulate it and they would change the order a little bit. But they wouldn't deny that the number one book in the country was really not even on the list. Now they're at the point, this is what they're doing. They're taking the list, the number one, number two best-selling books, throwing them off the list completely. And it shows, this is the same way their news coverage has changed. It always leaned left a little bit. Now it's just completely bonkers. But I guess the, the good thing for us and people that, enjoy what we do, is the mask is coming off this thing. Because you're right. When they could say, okay, the number two book, technically, let's put it at four. It's like, "Ah, maybe there's some way you can fiddle with some stuff. Okay, kind of. But when they completely change things, and then it's just obvious, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, I don't even know what the other books actually were on the list. I mean, I saw the full thing. But there's nothing that's really culturally relevant that I was, like, I think Molly Shannon, the comedian or former (laughs) comedian, had a book. Okay, good good for Molly Shannon. But the point is, I had this book. I'm, I'm the only one, I think, as far as I know, that was in those top... I wasn't even in the top 15, but out of the people on the 15, that is touring in sold-out clubs across the country. <laughs> right. Like, there's something relevant there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they not only don't put you on there, they don't, they don't write a review or anything. But again, it's like, 
All right, you're duping your own people. And the issue that I think you're hitting on is sort of, if you just dupe these people over time, and over time and over time and over time, well, you're not a newspaper anymore. So <laughs> when the New York Times used to say it's all the news to, that fits to print, it's actually all the news that fits the narrative. And if we can, again, just get that idea out to people, just understand they're lying to you about an awful lot of stuff. Mm. And if you get that, then you can hopefully start seeing the light. So I appreciate you bringing it up and I will continue. Well, you know, the other interesting thing about this, as you know, is that the entire publishing world has been based for 40 years on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. The whole thing was just get on the New York Times bestseller list. So by the time I wrote the first book, that was already starting to crumble. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, it's just, now it's a joke. Like really I can is. tell you truly from the highest levels of the publishing people that I'm involved with at the big companies, everyone's like, the whole thing's a farce. Don't get your panties in a bunch, yeah. life goes on. It's more about, I've noticed that they're more about just warning the authors, don't worry it's, about it's, it, yes. it's okay. Yes. We don't care. Yeah. Um, so let's go to the actual content of the book here. Yeah. Um, because Although that's not too far from the content of the book, honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. this idea that media Mainstream corporate media cannot be trusted. Yeah. Um, you, you set up current society, modern society, in an interesting way, in a battle between self-care and self-reliance. Yeah. Explain this out a little bit, because I don't think I've ever heard this explained this way. Well, we're obsessed with self-care, or at least this idea of self-care, that everything should just be catered to us and very easy and simple, and you should be able to get food delivered to you at the click of a button, and everything should appear all the time, and you know we should have monthly subscription services to all of our prescription medication, <laughs> and that we should basically just be, as I talk about in the book, we should be the characters in the Disney movie, dare I say Disney anymore, uh, but Disney was decent for at least a little period of time, uh, the Disney movie Wally, which you may remember, yeah. where in essence, you know, people had just become these sort of big fat blobs that existed in this futuristic spaceship and that had all of their carnal needs fed to them and that were just eating and drinking and watching things all the time. And they were just sort of these or semi-autonomous nothings that floated throughout the, the <laughs> ship. That's very different than self-reliance uh, because self-reliance is knowing how to do some things. Basic things, I'm talking things that we all knew how to do. Stu, how old are you? Uh, 46. Six, yeah. I'm 45, okay. Stu, so mm -hmm. I'm the younger one here on the show. But, <laughs> but you know, people, especially before us, yeah. knew how to do some stuff. Oh, you yeah. might know how to change a tire, mm -hmm. Stu. Uh, you might know how to grow a garden. You might know how to do some basic electric work. You might know how to reset a breaker. No one knows how to do these things anymore, meaning, meaning millennials basically don't know how to do things. They've been catered to to the point that they actually, if, if the poop hit the fan, and we've seen a lot of that over the last two years with lockdowns and violence and defund the police and all these things, that nobody can really do anything for themselves anymore. And you better learn how to be self-reliant because the big systems are crumbling. You, you may like the idea that you can do everything off the click of your phone, uh, but there is a real danger in that because it's disarming you from being able to take care of yourself. It's interesting because it is, I think, it, like I am pathetic with most things and being able to do them. I would not consider myself particularly good you at what you're talking about. You haven't fallen out of the chair about. yet. No, that's true. I can change a tire, a garden. I just hope Taco Bell's still open, yeah. right? So that's just, that's the whole thing. But it's like millennials and younger people who are yeah. generally more leaning left-wing as far as voters go and their interests are the ones who have embraced this lifestyle. And this lifestyle is only made possible by capitalism, yes. which they seem to hate. And I don't know how, I mean, if capitalism goes away, uh, as they seem to want to when they go to the polls, they seem to indicate that's their preference. All these things go away. The DoorDash doesn't come deliver when the, when the government's in charge of it. 
Young people are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> we have to accept that and deal with it. Yeah. I can see how you become an old man yelling at a cloud. You yes. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can really see how that happens. Look, the more that things get automated, the more that humans get removed from the system, the more that feeds a socialist monster because socialism in many ways is very anti-human. Capitalism is human, meaning that people like to freely exchange things. You have a skill or a good or a service, and I have a skill or a good or a service or money, and then we can exchange this openly, and then someone comes in with a better product, and then now the price goes down, and we can do this, this dance that is very uh, holistic in, in its sense of humans operating together right. by choice, right? It's amazing. It's incredible. What's happening because of technology is we are now automating everything to the point where we're removing humans from it. So DoorDash, guess what? We may not like what's going on and everybody may be able to do it all by a click of a button, but eventually they won't need you know, drivers in those cars because it'll be automated cars and it will be drones that are dropping these things off. So we have to be very careful what we ask for. You know, Technology, the phone in our pocket, this is a tool, I would say the same way something like, or a technology the same way something like fire is. You know, Fire is obviously great, it can warm your home and it can cook your food. It can also burn down that same house and burn you. So we really have to think, what are we really doing with all of this stuff? And I don't have an answer for that. I think the answer is personal for everybody. How connected do you want to be all the time? And how much reliance do you want to have on something that, you know, could just, the grid could go down one day and now you don't know how to do anything. Yeah, there's a mixture there. There's, yeah. there's some sort of midpoint. Uh, last one before you go. Um, there's a, th I think there's a debate on the right that is growing in which capitalism is coming under more question than I think it has previously. I think that the love for free markets has always been something associated with the right that the left has fought against. Yeah. And the left still hates it. The right, there's a split, though. I think we know some of the outcomes of the free market. We've talked about them here. You know, even with things like Disney, we haven't we don't like what's happening. And, and there's been a pushback against uh, I don't know, not against capitalism, but a, a worry that capitalism can't solve all of our, all of our problems. How do you see this playing out, and, and what's the right answer here? Look, capitalism, as far as I can see it, is the best of all man-made systems because it allows for the most competition. And as I said earlier, that, that's the most human thing that there is. It, it mm -hmm. leaves a little bit to chance. It leaves a little bit to human ingenuity. It leaves a little bit to hard work and luck and all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. So that, to me, is the best system. But is there anything that's perfect? I mean, I think this is what people always want, something that's just absolutely perfect. But perfection, I don't think, is attainable, actually. And, and perfection will lead you far closer to dystopia than to utopia. So is it possible that a corporation could become so large and buy all of the competition, thus crushing competition, and now prices rise and you're under their boot all the time? Of course, and does that happen? Of course. However, human ingenuity always finds a way. Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park, life <laughs> finds a way. Right. So I think as long as the conditions are, of freedom are there, we could maybe do some things on the margins. I would say related to the Disney situation, look, they took a political position that apparently has turned out to be quite unpopular. <laughs> yes. And it's cost them $41 billion roughly in the last month or so. That is pretty spectacular. And not only that, because that's the market talking. De you mm -hmm. know, DeSantis didn't go in and send the troops in and break up the board. He just basically said, hey, I'm going to stand against your beliefs related to the, you know, Bill HB 1557, which quote unquote, don't say gay, although sure. they could have called it don't say straight. That would have also made equal sense mm -hmm. because the word gay is not in there. Mm -hmm. Um, would have been equally wrong. <laughs> and it would have been, it would have been yeah, equally yeah, wrong. Yeah. At least do something equal, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, by DeSantis taking away some of Disney's special privileges, I think this is perhaps what you're talking about. This is where some conservatives were like, no, don't, don't push Disney too hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, but no, I believe you should take away all their special privileges. They shouldn't have special tax breaks that other companies have. They uh, don't have. They shouldn't have special laws, which they have in Orlando, and uh, and special. I mean, they can do their own roads and all of these things yeah. that maybe made some of it maybe made sense for expansion 50 years ago, but it doesn't make sense anymore. And uh, I don't want to be governed by a fictitious mouse. No, even if they come from California. It sounds so delightful. From California. <laughs> all right. Dave Rubin, the book uh, is out now. Make sure you pick up a copy. It's not it's not going to help him on the New York Times bestseller list, but buy it anyway. <laughs> uh, don't burn this country surviving and thriving in your in our woke uh, dystopia. It is available now wherever you get your books. And don't miss out on Dave Rubin's show. Of course, you're on Blaze TV. BlazeTV.com slash Stu. Promo code is Stu. Dave, thanks for coming on. Good to see you, my friend. January 6th. When I say January 6th, what do you think of? You probably think of all the storming of the Capitol that went on. And that's, of course, the main thing that the left wants you to do. They want you to remember January 6th at all costs. Let's take a step to remember a more important date. Might I present to you 624 22. Yes, last Friday. 624.22. The stuff is all available now at stewdoesmerch.com. If you want to show that you support the Roe versus Wade decision without having a shirt that has fetuses all over it, I would recommend this one. 624.22. Check it out now. Stewdoesmerch.com. Use the code Stu10 to save 10%. I want to go through some of the testimony from yesterday in the January 6th situation. And why do I want to do that? Well, Look, I am a person who would like to know some things about January 6th. I think there are some interesting nuggets that could be mined out of trying to figure all this stuff out. How did this happen? You know, I thought to myself, I remember on January 6th thinking, why wasn't there security there? Why wasn't there enough security to stop a riot like this from actually taking place? What if next time it's Al-Qaeda? What if next time it's ISIS? What if next time... It's some scary organization that really does want to come in and start murdering people inside the Capitol. Shouldn't we have something we could do about that? So there are things that, in theory, could be valuably learned from something like the January 6th committee. But of course, this committee does not seem to actually care about that. They seem to be wanting to smear people. So yesterday, there was a, a big surprise committee meeting. Testimony from one Cassidy Hutchinson. Now, Cassidy Hutchinson was the chief of staff of the chief of staff. Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, Cassidy Hutchinson. So in some ways, she is a pretty interesting witness. She's someone who's there the whole time. She was in the middle of a lot of these big meetings. She didn't, you know, start working for Donald Trump for the first six months and then start hating him. She was there right at the end. And so anything that she says is going to get some attention. It's going to be interesting to see what that was. But Instead of taking what she said and picking out what is important and what isn't, the left has tried to extend this and make it into the biggest deal of all time. Let me just give you a taste of this. The Atlantic said, the most damning January 6th testimony yet. Cassidy Hutchinson, January 6th bombshells. Insider Cassidy Hutchinson, explosive January 6th testimony could land Trump in legal jeopardy. Former aides say, this is a bombshell, says CNN. Trump aides left speechless by Hutchinson testimony. Cassidy Hutchinson's January 6th testimony painted a picture for the history books. Behold Mark Meadows, doom scroller in chief, feckless, indifferent, or both. 
says Esquire. MSNBC, Hutchinson testimony. Yes, why? Cassidy Hutchinson's January 6th testimony blew the roof off of Trump's defense. Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony should be the end of Donald Trump. Wow, must be a big bombshell in there. Cassidy Hutchinson's surprise January 6th testimony exposes the violence that fuels Trumpism. Wow. I mean, that is quite the buildup. It seems like the whole thing is about to shake apart. I mean, first of all, Donald Trump doesn't have anybody on the committee. He doesn't seem to be making any defense to much much of this stuff. He's kind of viewing it from afar. But if that blows up his, his defense, if he might be thrown in prison, if it exposed the violence, well, of course, we want to hear about that. But is that actually accurate? Let's go through a couple of the big parts of this testimony and try to translate it because the media seemed to see to be reading and hearing a different language than I was. Let me try to translate the media BS to English for you so that you can understand it. Here is Cassidy Hutchinson talking about uh, the, the day of uh, January 6th. Trump makes his speech. He gets in the beast to the presidential limousine and then all hell breaks loose. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Ornato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel correct or disagree with any part of the story for Mr. Ornato? Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Ornato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. And despite this altercation, this physical altercation, uh, during the ride back to the White House, President Trump still demanded to go to the Capitol. Now, this is pretty interesting because we were told for months and months and months that the president wanted to get the hell out of there and go back to the White House because he didn't care about the chaos down at the Capitol. He didn't want to be anywhere near it. He wanted to live his life in the West Wing in safety while everyone got into a riot down at the Capitol building. That narrative now has completely flipped over. You are now supposed to forget that that was the narrative just a few weeks ago, and you have to embrace this new narrative that Trump wanted to go to the Capitol so badly but was being stopped by a Secret Service. Now, To me, it's not at all surprising that the president would want to go to the Capitol and be with his voters, his supporters, his most passionate supporters. When 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 you like Trump, Trump likes you. That's kind of the way we've seen this go for a few decades of public life for Donald Trump. And he was very interested in being down there with what he saw as his people. Of course, if he was actually assaulting Secret Service agents, that's not okay. And that would not be okay. In fact, we would be calling him out on that. The only problem with this narrative is it doesn't seem to be true at all. In fact, the Secret Service agent who was actually uh, involved in this incident has 
you know, and Secret Service agents are not necessarily normally the type of people who volunteer information to you. Uh, he's decided to come out and testify that Trump did not lunge at him. So this is the big takeaway from the testimony yesterday. The number one claim, the dramatic claim everyone was talking about. He was going after the clavicle. There is an anti-clavicle cause in the Constitution. President can't violate that, cannot touch anybody's clavicles. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Anyway, this whole idea that the president came after him and you know, almost tried to choke him or break his collarbone, I don't know, immediately shot down by the person who supposedly told the story. And that's the thing here. This is not firsthand information from Cassidy Hutchinson. She's coming in to tell a story that someone else allegedly told her. Now, we will find out from the actual testimony from the Secret Service whether that's true or not. Did he maybe say that story and embellish it a little bit? Maybe there was a, a confrontation of sorts that didn't escalate to this level, and that's the line they're drawing. We don't know for sure yet, but what we do know is it seems as if the Secret, Sur Secret Service agents that were supposedly involved in this situation are saying it wasn't true. That should be enough for you to turn it off, right? Like, that should be enough to say, okay, well, that's, why are we talking about that? Yet the media, as I just showed you, over and over and over again, said this was incredibly important, groundbreaking, bombshell testimony. Well, if the biggest claim in it has already been uh, 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 disagreed with and denied, not by a political appointee, not by, I don't know, Mark Meadows himself, somebody who has a, an, not by Rudy Giuliani, somebody who has a specific interest and is very uh, heavy on the Trump defense. No, by, by the Secret Service. Secret Service would just tell the truth, right? I mean, why, why do we, we there's no reason to believe that the, the Secret Service agents in this case are lying on behalf of Trump. They're saying this didn't happen. I'm not saying Cassidy Hutchinson is necessarily lying. Maybe that's what she got from the story. Maybe maybe even the agent embellished the story at the time because he was pissed off at Donald Trump. Who knows? We're going to find this out, but it uh, doesn't seem to be much there. There was some other stuff in the hearing. Let me give you a couple more clips. Uh, this is uh, one where um, Pat Cipollone is the uh, lawyer. Uh, he was uh, highly worried about potential charges after the fact here. And um, let me give you this from uh, this is from Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony yesterday. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. To which Pat said something, this is effing crazy. We need to be doing something more. You know, look, I have told you that I don't really understand the delay in the in the calling uh, for, for the people to get out of that building. I mean, I think 10 minutes into this, five minutes into it, one minute into it, Trump should have been on, on the Twitters and said, hey, guys, get the hell out of that building. You're no supporter of mine. If you're in that building, get out. We'll do this the right way. Uh, that's what I think he should have done. It took him too long to do that, and he's received criticism over that. I asked uh, Bill O'Reilly about this. You know, O'Reilly, of course, a good friend of President Trump, just did, recently did a tour with him. We asked him about this on radio, and I said, hey, like, you know, what was that delay? And his explanation was that, look, he, he didn't know what to do. You know, these are his supporters. Uh, they're doing something that I don't think anybody foresaw. Like, uh, you know, Trump 
supporters, generally speaking, have had a lot of rallies and not a lot of violence. So it was sort of unexpected. He didn't know how to react to it. You know, that may or may not be the case. The president hasn't really gone into detail as to what was going on in those moments. Uh, We may learn more from the January 6th committee. It just doesn't seem like we're going to learn more. Um, Pat uh, Cipollone was uh, was there as well, talking about um, a, a big part of the criminal possibilities here. He was very worried that something bad might come down uh, the pike. Now, remember, he's a lawyer. Uh, so this is this is his job. And he's very, you know, if you've ever dealt with a lawyer, we've done this with with lawyers uh, for broadcasts before. They don't want you to do anything. <laughs> you know, they don't want you to do anything. They're always worried about everything all the time. That's what their job is. Uh, here they are talking uh, about uh, Cipollone and and Hutchinson testifying on what his role was in the middle of all this. And Mr. Cipollone said something to you like, make sure the movement to the Capitol does not happen. Is that correct? That's correct. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked out onto West Exec that morning. And Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. One of the interesting parts about all of this is the focus on the day itself where the riot occurred is a focus on something that is, you know, not nearly as problematic as some of the other stuff that went around the election. We still don't know what Trump's role was in some of that stuff. But like they keep focusing on whether he was going to go to the Capitol or not, or whether he was going to move to the Capitol. He wasn't going to the Capitol. The the riot hadn't started yet. He wasn't going to the Capitol to join in the riot. He was going to be with his supporters. And that was something that I think clearly was important to him at that time. Agree with him or not, that's what he wanted to do. And what they're trying to basically make it seem like now, after telling us for months he was a scaredy cat, he was a wuss. He was nice and warm in the uh, the Oval Office in the West Wing, and he was uh, he was totally fine, protected while he was sending his people in to do the dirty work at the Capitol. Now we have to believe the exact opposite. Now we're supposed to believe that he wanted to go, and he wanted to go with an armed mob. Right. He wanted to take all these guys that were out there with guns and go scare and maybe kill everybody in the Capitol building. This is really the the switch you're supposed to embrace now at this point. Now, this uh, there was another big part of this testimony, and it goes down this road where it talks about President Trump wanting a bigger crowd. Now, everything we know about Donald Trump indicates that he did want a bigger crowd. He always wants a bigger crowd. He does not like when there's empty patches where people are not standing. And what was happening here is there was a, a secure area where Trump was speaking with a lot of people inside but some empty spaces outside of that secure area. There were other people who were watching the speech, but did not come in the secure area, largely, at least according to some of the security reports, because some of them were armed and they were not allowing anyone who was armed inside the fences, understandably. Well, Trump didn't like the fact that he had empty spaces. He wanted these guys to come in. And here is the big controversial part of this testimony. Listen, he was told again in that conversation, or was he told again in that conversation that people couldn't come through the mags because they had weapons? Correct. And um, that people 
and he, his response was to say they can march to the Capitol from from the ellipse. Something to the effect of take the effing mags away. They're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from they can march from the ellipse. Take the effing mags away. Then they can march to the Capitol. Got it. So they, he was saying, hey, get rid of the security. Let these people in. Now, that, I think, is going to cause affinity between Trump and the people who were there. Uh, and this is the problem that I think the left fundamentally in the media does not understand, which is when we hear the word guns on the right, we don't think murder. That's not what we think. We don't think that people are there just because they have guns to kill everybody. We think that there are people who believe in the Second Amendment, people who want to protect themselves, people who are good people, good law abiding citizens. That's how that's our initial reaction to people with guns. Our initial reaction isn't fear. So that separation causes a lot of confusion here, or at least gives the left and the media an opportunity to act like they're confused about it because they went immediately down this road that, hey, wait a minute. Trump had armed people there. He knew there were some people who were armed and he wanted to march to the Capitol. Therefore, he wanted to march to the Capitol with armed men. Do you think they'll buy that? That's really where they went. Let me give you some examples. Trump said, I don't even care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me as an angry mob avoided metal detectors at his January 6th speech, said the ex-aide. Hutchinson says Trump knew January 6th attendees had women, or, excuse me, weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Again, the way that's presented over and over again, they're not here to hurt me is like, well, they're here to hurt the people at the Capitol, not me, so I don't care. But that's not what that... Come on, guys. That's not what that means. What he's saying here, at least my understanding of it, is he's saying they're not going to shoot me if we let them in the, in the secured area. That's not why they're here. They're my supporters. They're not going to shoot me. Don't worry about the security as much. I need these people in here. The media is trying to present this as, well, he knew these people had guns and they weren't there to hurt the, him. They were, must have been there to hurt people at the Capitol for a violent coup. Uh, I don't effing care that they had weapons. Trump was aware his supporters were armed before he ordered them to march to the Capitol, says the January 6th hearings. Trump urged armed supporters to the Capitol. White House aide testifies. Trump sought to lead an armed mob to the Capitol on January 6th, aide says. My understanding of what the aide says was not that. Did not want to. That's not what she said. You're reading into that and putting that on her. The bottom line here is there's a big difference in perception and reality. You know, I don't see all guns as evil. I don't see them as immediately murderous. So I don't see them as something to be scared of. I don't have fear for guns. When we're out and we see people who, are gu- uh, who, ha- who have guns, generally speaking, they're law-abiding citizens. And most of them I'm excited to have there because I know that if something goes down, someone will be able to do something about it. That's how I view guns. I understand in the media you might not view them that way, but you can't apply your feelings onto Donald Trump. He doesn't see gun owners the same way you do. Look, the truth is there is plenty to criticize about January 6th and probably more importantly, the the dates around that. What happened, how it was handled. A lot of it was not handled correctly. And we could find some interesting tidbits if there was an actual committee doing actual work here. But look, Donald Trump was not trying to lead an armed mob. That is completely rewriting history and not understanding the fundamental basics of gun ownership, especially as it appears to the right. Um, And he doesn't, 
at all seem to be guilty of attacking the Secret Service. We only know that because the Secret Service came out and said it didn't occur. You know, if you're going to have this big testimony, this big surprise moment where going after the clavicle is the big punchline, maybe you check with the with the Secret Service first and ask them if it occurred. Why on earth did this testimony even come out if when we go to the Secret Service, they're going to say it wasn't even a thing later on? Now, we haven't seen that testimony yet. We only have the reports of it, but they would not be reporting it if they were not certain it was going to happen because it demeans and destroys their point. You know, the truth is here that the Dems are looking around right now and they're seeing something pretty awful. They're seeing despair. They're seeing an election that is going to go down the crapper. They're seeing people upset about inflation and about Ukraine and about the border and about the economy and about everything else that Joe Biden has touched over the past couple of years. They see failure. They see despair. They have no arguments to push back against this. So they're latching on to the abortion argument. They're latching on to January 6th to try to come up with some reason they can at least try to hold purple, maybe some blue districts even. They're trying to do something because they know they're in trouble and they have to give some argument to the American people. And the only one left is screaming about January 6th. What you're seeing throughout these hearings is not some big condemnation of Donald Trump wanting to lead an armed mob to the Capitol. What you're seeing now from the left is desperation. Desperation. 